Unfortunately, technology moves very quickly and society moves very slowly. So we're in this in this juncture, it may be a few decades, frankly, uh, at least a few generations, to determine what the new rules of the game will be. What are our privacy expectations and whose responsibility is it to maintain privacy? This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer today on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a rain-soaked Southern California my co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is away on business today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors today, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, which is a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, we're going to be talking about Tyler Clementi today, who is a Rutgers University student. He jumped to his death after he discovered that his college roommate had secretly used the webcam on his computer to stream a sexual encounter between Clementi and another man online. The two students, Darun Ravai and Molly Wee, were both charged with invasion of privacy and could face additional charges. The case has sent shockwaves through the legal community, gay community, and universities all over the world, with many debating the legal issues and the fate of the students. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to get an inside look at the Tyler Clementi case, the legal issues, invasion of privacy through technology, the possibility of a hate crime, and the potential criminal case against the two students involved with streaming the video. We have three great guests today. Our first guest is Henry Klingeman. He's a partner at Crovaton Klingeman LLC in Newark, New Jersey, where he concentrates in federal and state criminal defense work. At the U.S. Attorney's Office from 1995 to 2001, Henry prosecuted all kinds of criminal cases at both the trial and appellate level. Mr. Klingeman left the U.S. Attorney's Office right after 9-11 to start his own practice. The majority of his cases are in federal court in New Jersey and as well around the country and New Jersey State Court. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Henry. Thank you. And our next guest is Nancy Willard. She is the Executive Director of Center for a Safe and Responsible Internet Use. Nancy is a recognized authority on issues related to the safe and responsible use of the internet. The center's goal is to provide guidance to parents, educators, librarians, policymakers, and others regarding effective empowerment strategies to assist young people in gaining the knowledge, skills, motivation, and self-control to use the internet and other information technologies in a safe and responsible manner. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Nancy. Thank you very much. And our next and last guest is Jim Harper. He is the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. As a Director of Information Policy Studies, Jim Harper focuses on the difficult problems of adapting law and policy to the unique problems of the information age. Harper is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. He is also the editor of, I'm going to guess this is pronounced privacilla.org, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy. Welcome to Lawyer, Jim. Thanks. You got that pronunciation right. Excellent. Well, Henry, uh, let's start with you. If you wouldn't mind, can you give us some background on the case to kind of set the stage about what we're going to be talking about in terms of the legal issues that we've that we're seeing in this case? Sure. 
The uh, state prosecutor in New Jersey has charged the two defendants with uh, what's called invasion of privacy under New Jersey law. And um, it carries a maximum penalty upon conviction of five years in state prison. But ordinarily, uh, a first-time offender is likely to receive a probation sentence. Given um, Tyler Clemente's suicide and the notoriety of this situation, uh, it's impossible to predict how it's going to turn out. Well, what kind of, um, Nancy, what kind of privacy issues, and, and or I guess really the question for you is, how is it that um, these the students should have been using the Internet, or what is it that you see as the problem in terms of what uh, your center uh, propounds and, and teaches? Right. Um, I should also mention I'm a, a graduate of Willamette University College of Law, so I'm also a lawyer. Um, this case raises issues um, that specifically relate to um, people who are capturing or disseminating uh, nude images of others. And in most states, there are laws, um, invasion of privacy laws, that are generally written that people should not take photographs of others in places where privacy is expected, like a restroom or a locker room. And in this case, the law was directly applicable to the situation of you know, taking pictures in a dorm room when somebody's engaged in a sexual act. Um, one of the things that I have been focusing on is how do we respond both in a prevention, education, intervention, and legal manner to the sexting issues that are coming up. Because it is being reported that a lot of teenagers, as well as young adults and even seniors, if you believe the AARP website, are creating and sending these images. I recently testified before a legislative committee with the Indiana State Legislature and I recommended that they consider revising their invasion of privacy statute so that it specifically covers situations where there is malicious acquisition of a nude image or the malicious distribution or distribution without the permission of the person depicted. In addition to this case, if anybody, and I probably shouldn't do this at uh, uh, work or school, but if you conduct a search on the term revenge porn, you will see that there are websites that have been set up so that the um, uh, a partner in a former or a former partner in a relationship who has these nude images, generally the male partner, um, has the opportunity to post those images. So I think bottom line is that we need to have a very clear uh, enunciated standard that broadcasting somebody's nude image on the Internet isn't okay, and that needs to be backed up by uh, the criminal statutes. Jim, what are the policy concerns that you see here? Well, this uh, incident fits into uh, an uncertain area of, of public policy and public expectations. It's really fascinating. I think actually to me as a, an example of a clear privacy invasion, taking the facts as they've been reported in the press, um, this is an area where you have a real, genuine, outrageous uh, revelation of private information. And, and so I think it's a good illustration in privacy debates of other types, uh, online privacy, dealing with tracking, for example, of, of users' web behavior and things like that. Those are, uh, people feel strongly about those, of course, but uh, historically the, the privacy invasions that were 
uh, justiciable, the ones that, that you took to court either civilly or criminally, were these really, truly outrageous ones. So I think it, it provides interesting perspective. Obviously, the status of information is, is an open question in a lot of cases. Um, what are people's rights and liabilities with information that they make available or information that they collect openly or surreptitiously? These are all just open questions, which is why my job is so so interesting, frankly. Well, Henry, New Jersey, I understand, has one of the toughest state laws on hate crimes. Uh, where do you think that that's going to turn out in this case? Um, a, a hate crime in New Jersey has to be a, a criminal act, such as an assault or a uh, uh, other form of attack that's motivated, at least in part, by um, uh, the victim's personal characteristics. Uh, obviously, race and religion are the traditional ones that the law has uh, covered, but lately, um, uh, homosexuality is also, uh, can now, can now be the basis of a hate crime prosecution. Uh, it's not clear from the reported facts, uh, that Jim alluded to that this, uh, event was motivated by anti-gay animus, uh, based on the, the Twitter posts that have been published. It appears that the, uh, the male defendant, the roommate of Tyler Clemente was uh, certainly fascinated by the fact that his roommate was gay, but it's hard to say that uh, his post contained any anti-gay language or uh, uh, epithets. Um, and so the prosecutor locally has already said publicly he thinks it's unlikely that there will be a hate crime prosecution here. Um, and uh, and I, I would agree with that. Well, Nancy, what's the what's the issue in terms of uh, sexuality in this case? Is it uh, would it have been different? Uh, and it's difficult to predict, obviously, because you know we don't know the reaction of a heterosexual um, that was involved with it. But um, would it have mattered whether it was uh, gay sex or straight sex? I think, from a legal perspective, we have to be clear that the to to recognize that the consequence. Um, could shouldn't drive the prosecution. Uh, we saw the same thing happen in the Megan Myers case, which was actually totally inaccurately reported. But when there's this tendency that if we see a suicide, that that should somehow then make the act that tr- possibly triggered that suicide um, that we should consider it more egregious and have a a more significant criminal consequence. And I think we have to really understand that suicide is generally, there are generally many factors that go into it. You might see a trigger event, but it's very hard to actually sort out. I It has been reported, and I do not know if this is accurate, that um, this young man's parents, did not know that he was gay. Well, that, from my perspective in working with at-risk youth, raises questions about, you know, the degree to which he felt his uh, sexual orientation might be accepted within his family, within his society. I think the larger, far more significant issue that we have not been dealing with effectively in our society is the degree to which uh, young people who have a minority sexual orientation are routinely harassed and bullied. And, you know, we don't know what happened in Taylor's life leading up to this, the degree to which he potentially was bullied and harassed in in high school. And he was 18 years old away from home for the first time. 
but there is um, very significant research. One study showed that um, approximately 30% of uh, teens who have a sexual um, orientation have attempted suicide. So this is, and, and we have reports, there have been five suicides of young men in the last three weeks that are tied to bullying and harassment grounded in the fact that they are gay or perceived to be gay. So we've got a, and then on the other hand, what we've got is focus on the family and the Alliance Defense Fund that continue to address this as a freedom of speech issue within schools. And they're actually um, going against and objecting to bullying prevention um, programs as part of what they call a gay agenda. So I think as a society, we've got to get to the point that to realize that the messages about homosexuality um, that are coming from the religious right are causing young people to suicide, are causing them to have very significant challenges within schools um, because of of the denigration related to that and we need to start talking to the the folks who are encouraging this and and start drawing the line there also and i note that there's a, a supreme court case related to that at this point in time jim how do we look at the issues of causation here i mean obviously the the streaming video on the internet you know appears to everyone who's looking at it, or at least at first glance, to be the real reason that Tyler Clemente committed suicide. But as Nancy just mentioned, a lot of that conflict was in his head uh, in the sense of, you know, that was the that's what the direct cause of it was. And to some degree, maybe his own inability to, to communicate with his parents and do the parents have any responsibility here? Does Tyler have any responsibility here? Where do we sort and lay the blame for the situation? Do we lay it on the two students who videotaped him or who taped him and streamed it? And then, or do we lay it on Tyler or on his parents or even on society? Where do we sit on that? One of the first reactions I saw to this case, and maybe maybe it was a Facebook post that I picked up first thing in the morning, so it might have been the first I read of the case, was somebody arguing that uh, that the internet was essentially to blame that this this uh, ideology of a of free and open internet was was really to blame. But I don't think there's a, a a sensible way to to place liability on the internet. After all, it's a huge amorphous really communications tool. So you have to try and pick your pick your actor. Who's the who's the liable actor? Is it the uh, creator of the software tool? Is it the uh, creator of the webcam? Is it the internet service provider? And so on and so forth. There doesn't seem to be a good a good way to fix uh, proximate causation on these parties. It's about at the same level of 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 fixing liability on the university or perhaps the high school for not teaching sensitivity or the parents, um, whatever it may be. I think I think there's a lot of talk in the early early response to stories like this about uh, putting liability a lot of places, but ultimately I think it should probably come to rest on the the two other students who did this outrageous act. It's uh, personal responsibility is a is a time tested uh, way of organizing society that is not upended by the internet, although the internet. Uh, puts right in our face stories like this. It, it it permits bad behavior to be much worse. It's a powerful tool in that way, just as it's a powerful tool for good. But it isn't that we can't blame the internet. We can't uh, we can't we can't blame 
secondary and tertiary actors when the primary actors uh, are, are are really at fault. They're the ones that start this and they're the ones that cause it all the way through. Henry, how do you think causation is going to play out here? Uh, I, I tend to agree with Jim. Uh, I think that the fault certainly appears to lie with the male defendant who uh, actively um, and secretly broadcast Tyler's um, uh, assignation. Um, I, I would digress for a moment to point out that it's not clear from any of the media reports what the liability or culpability of the female defendant is. Obviously, the male defendant was in her room using her computer, but uh, if that's all that, that really happened here and she didn't play any active role, um, she's certainly suffering uh, a blow to her life and reputation that is completely unjustified. So we'll have to see. I, I don't know if the prosecutor fully appreciated the uh, the uh, significance of this situation when he brought those initial charges. It's often the case, at least in New Jersey State Court, that sometimes a lot of people are charged, and by the time the case is over, some people get get, to get their charges dismissed, and that could ultimately happen with respect to the female defendant. Um, but I, I think the old-fashioned principles of proximate cause are going to apply here, both in the criminal and civil context, and this, uh, this male defendant is going to bear the brunt of responsibility um, here and for the rest of his life. Um, and that's, that's, that's certainly true from the legal perspective. Jim, just to kind of broaden the perspective on it here and take a step back for a moment, what's the policy issues or where do we see uh, the circumstances of people that are, are doing sexting and that are, are posting abusive or hurtful messages on Facebook and Twitter uh, and even just communicating between one another? What, what's going on with society? When did this, why has this all come about? Well, uh... <laughs> The internet is a is a uh, and all the and all the communications tools we have today, which often use the internet, are really um, challenging old assumptions about privacy. Uh, we've we've had a sense of privacy that developed originally in the natural environment. That is, uh, we didn't know necessarily how photons work to know that you got to put on clothes to to prevent other people seeing your body. We didn't know how sound waves work to know that we had to lower our voices to prevent other people hearing our conversations. And we had, as a society, you know, tens of thousands and millions of years to, to accommodate ourselves to the natural environment. Now, the telephone came along, and things were strange with people there in the, the early years of the telephone. People thought they were quite intrusive and quite invasive, as well as photography, which was one of the inspirations for the uh, Harvard Law Review article, The Right to Privacy, in 1890. Well, we've, we've burst into a new world, really a new... Uh, it, space, cyberspace, I don't really like that term, but we're in this space where the rules are quite different than what they were before. Information that you reveal, and you reveal a lot more, most people are able to reveal a lot more than they even know about when they go online. Um, That information is housed somewhere on a basis that is pretty much permanent. Uh, It's not necessarily true that it's going to be in a a unified depository for good, but, but there's very little getting away from information you've shared online. And that's an entirely new circumstance technically. And so we have to come up with new uh, social responses. Unfortunately, technology moves very quickly and society moves very slowly. So we're in this in this juncture. It may be a few decades, frankly, uh, at least a few generations, to determine what the new rules of the game will be. What are our privacy expectations and whose responsibility is it to maintain privacy? My preference as, a, as an advocate for, for public policies 
is to try to get people in a position to understand what's going on with information so that they can make decisions that are well-tailored to their lives. Um, that does place responsibility with people in the, in the average, you know, web surfing environment to, to decide, are you going to submit this information? Are you going to do this search? Or are you going to use a different search engine? Are you going to use allow cookies to be placed on your computer or not? Uh, are you going to switch up your IP address in order to do some uh, surfing that's very sensitive? That's all technically difficult, but in a few years, decades maybe, uh, people will understand better how that works. Or in the middle, or I think maybe in the early stages of a, of a big conversation, about technology and privacy and how we're going to live our lives in the future. Craig, this what Jim's talking about is very practical. Um, I counsel clients and my own kids for that, that matter. When we were growing up, people used to tell us about, you know, things we do going on our permanent record. And as I became a lawyer, I realized there is no such thing as a permanent record in some government repository. But the Internet is effectively a permanent record. And, and kids today who are starting Facebook accounts at eight, nine years old, can expect that material to be available when they're in their 80s or 90s. Um, and uh, it's very important that people realize that what goes up on the Internet is, is truly permanent. And we also need to really focus on on the practices of industry and, and what kind of messages that they're communicating. Um, the, the kind of mantra of Facebook is that um, people want everybody to know everything about them, and the default privacy settings are set up, in my opinion, in a manner that is way too broad. You know, we, we should start off with, especially with young people um, who are registering on the site, the privacy settings should be at a default that the information is only disclosed with the people who they know and trust who they've friended but there's this push, and a lot of it is a commercial push, of wanting people to connect with so many others and wanting them to share information. And a lot of that information that they're being asked to share, um, it's, it's presented to them that they're sharing information so that they can make connections with other people who have the same interests. Well, in fact, the market profiler folks are the ones who really want to have that information because they use that then for uh, targeted advertising. So there's this whole level of lack of understanding of what is happening with with promoting such disclosure um, and who's promoting it and why. And then we need to really focus in on how we're educating young people and how we're educating everybody about about these issues, um, and the bottom line is going to get down to the the prevention education that is so necessary. Well, we need to take a short break, and when we return, we will revisit the issue of the Tyler Clemente case. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. 
Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by Henry Klingeman. He's a criminal defense attorney at Crovaton Klingeman LLC in New Jersey. He's also a former federal prosecutor. Nancy Willard, who is the executive director of the Center for Safe and Responsible Internet Use. And Jim Harper, who is the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. We've been talking about the privacy issues associated with the Taylor Clemente case, and, and I'd like to take a step on that a bit further and explore the issue of how the Internet affects privacy across the world. You know, Americans tend to be, and American children in particular, tend to be very open on the Internet and sharing uh, information with their friends and revealing just about anything about them. Europeans, on the other hand, tend to be more private, although their sexuality is a lot more uh, open, I think, than Americans may be. Jim, how do you see that sorting through? As you mentioned, you know, it may take decades for us to kind of get our bearings on what's appropriate to to express on the Internet and what's not appropriate. And how do we address this across uh, social boundaries and, and country boundaries? Well, at the, inter- at the risk of, of, of being being uh, too ethereal about it, if you, if you think of privacy over centuries rather than just decades, uh, we might be moving back to a to a set of social constructs that are a lot more like life centuries ago in a given town that people were were born in, grew up in, and died in. Everybody knew everybody else's business most of the time. There were very few effective secrets. To keep a secret, you had to literally remain silent and, and everything else you did, who you talked to, where you visited. Uh, people lived you know, communally in houses. Uh, Walls were thin or non-existent, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knew everybody else's business. We've had the luxury uh, of wealth, especially in the United States, to have more privacy than I think most people have around the world, and certainly historically most people have had. Now maybe the wealth of the Internet is, is changing us back to a, to a time that's closer to primordial times when more information was known about everybody, and you were already part of a person's community. Uh, we, we will be, going forward, already a part of others' communities, when we first meet them in the physical world. I myself am a Twitter user and Facebook user, of course, and I'm much more aware of my friends and colleagues' vacation trips and hobbies and interests because of because I use these things. The community, community is 
uh, more close-knit. I have a, a larger group of friends that I know more about. And at the same time, the other side of that coin is that we all have less privacy and we're obviously at risk of revealing information that we don't want to share with this large community. Henry, how do you see it? Do you think that the uh, ultimately the parents are going to be suing the uh, two students over this? Do you think the oh, criminal right. prosecution? Sure. Re- regardless of the outcome of the criminal case, uh, and I have a pretty good sense of how that's going to end up, uh, undoubtedly uh, the, uh, the family, the estate of Tyler Clemente uh, has a very strong claim, not just against the male defendant, but perhaps uh, others. Um, they'll obviously retain counsel and contemplate their options, but uh, certainly from the, the reported facts, the male defendant bears a direct responsibility that a, a jury would likely uh, uh, reward with a large uh, damages award. Should we in in should we continue that? I mean, we had um, five other youth suicides that were associated with bullying based on being gay, um, and then we've got this assistant attorney general in um, Michigan who has been engaging in in exceptionally offensive. Um, uh, online attacks against the uh, student body president of the university there. So should we essentially um, ensure that we have civil litigation or criminal litigation against anyone who engages in bullying and harassment that then ultimately results in uh, a young person or anyone committing suicide? Should we hold schools um, liable um, if if a student suicides when there is um, evidence of bullying? How far you know wh- where where are the boundaries going to be um, as we proceed? What what I'm seeing in the court cases related uh, that are being um, against schools for bullying. What we're finding is an increasing willingness to assess the effectiveness of the of the school's bullying prevention program. That is, they may have policies in place and they may respond to individual incidents that are reported, but if those incidents are continuing and the harm continues, um, we're seeing a tendency for those schools to be held liable for failure to do that. I'm not sure that we're going to resolve all of these issues in the courtroom. Uh, I think we need to have a broader uh, societal base. Well, that's a great topic. And this is this conversation has gone by so quickly. Uh, we've just about reached the end of our program. So it's time to, for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So, Jim, let's start with you. Well, I'm uh, Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute uh, at cato.org. My email, should anyone want to contact me, is jharper at cato.org. And I also run a website that uh, it's not very active, but it has some good resources on privacy called privacilla.org. That's privacy, drop the Y, and add Godzilla's tail.org. And if you want to track federal legislation, I also run a website called washingtonwatch.com, which is a helpful resource, I think. Great. And Henry, let's let's get your uh, final thoughts as, your, as well as your contact information. From a, from a criminal perspective, I... I... I predict that the uh, the male defendant here will be uh, asked to plead guilty 
uh, to this invasion of privacy charge, and I would be very surprised if he didn't spend uh, some period of time in state prison as a consequence. Uh, equally, though, I, I think that the prosecutor is going to have a tough time making a case against the female co-defendant, and that charge may ultimately be dropped. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I practice nationally. I can be reached at my office in New Jersey, 973-714-3474. And uh, I can be reached via email, hklingeman at crovaton.com. Or uh, in the spirit of the show, you can just Google me. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Jim, before we we turn to uh, Nancy to get her final thoughts, I don't think we heard from you on your final thought. Well, the, this case is interesting because it's one where you actually have that truly outrageous privacy invasion. The tough ones are, are the rest of the debate, where where people allege that their their privacy is being invaded, but and 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 some people definitely feel that way, but it's not necessarily shared society wide. The question of damages when when somebody is being monitored online in a way they don't like, but that doesn't have these outrageous consequences. Uh, those are the tough areas, and it's and it's a very interesting uh, set of issues that we're dealing with here in the privacy area. Uh, this is one that's good to talk about because we know that uh, that lessons learned by trial and error are, are some of the most profound. And so across the country and across the world, people are learning now, maybe for the first time, unfortunately, that, that this kind of behavior is, is really, really inappropriate and can do tremendous damage to people's lives. Right. And Nancy, you get the uh, final word. Thank you. First of all, I uh, really appreciate being on this panel, and I had the opportunity to look over Jim's sites and and think uh, really commend him for his work in this area. I think it's very important. Um, my website is uh, well. I'm at Center for Safe and Responsible Internet Use, and the URL is csrau.org. I um, there's a report on that site under articles and reports focusing on the sexting issues. And I think that we need to be reconsidering the criminal statutes within states to address these issues so that we do have more clear standards that are very balanced, understanding that a lot of times young people don't really recognize what's going on here and and engage in actions that they need to be held accountable for, but in a balanced manner. And that's what I'm trying to do right now is to um, try to assist state legislatures in coming up with a more balanced approach to address these specific, the, these specific sexting issues. Great. Well, thank you all very much for your help in discussing this tragic uh, set of circumstances, uh, not only for the student who lost his life, but also for the students who uh, streamed the video. Their lives will be changed forever as a consequence of this one act. It's just a sad commentary on uh, the power of the Internet. Well, for our listeners, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. We can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'd like to thank our guests for being with us today. Uh, our, they've uh, really contributed to the topic and understanding of this, and I hope that these words reverberate around the Internet. You can find all our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes, and you can get CLE credit on the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. We'll see you again next week, and hopefully Bob will be back and uh, covering a great legal topic. We'll see you then.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.